My name is Lisa O'Mara Arnquist, and I have the distinct pleasure to introduce to you Richard O'Mara, my father, who's going to do a reading for us tonight from his book, The Street Where They Lived. Most of us here know Richard, and we know him primarily for his long and illustrious career as a journalist. Most of that time he spent working for the Baltimore Sun. He worked for that newspaper for 34 years, and he wore many hats at the Baltimore Sun. In the six years prior to his retirement in 1999, he was a features writer. Before that, he was the bureau chief in London from 1990 to 1992. Prior to that, he served as the Sun's foreign editor for 12 years. In the early 90s, he was nominated for a Pulitzer for his reporting on the famine and civil unrest in Somalia. In the early 1980s, he distinguished himself for his reporting throughout Latin America, particularly in Nicaragua and Guatemala. From 1973 to 1976, he served as the Sun's bureau chief for Latin America. Before that, he was the Baltimore Sun's editor of the perspective section for three years, and prior to that, he spent six years working as an editorial writer. He didn't spend all of his professional career working for the Baltimore Sun. For three years, he, ser- he worked as a reporter for the Buenos Aires Herald, when he, where he lived in Argentina with my mother, and where my sister Andrea and I were born. And his entire career as a journalist started uh, as, a, as a cub reporter for the News American, at that, at that point known as the News Post. He has also served as a Knight uh, International Press Fellow, uh, serving as a consultant for a, a newspaper in Leon, Mexico. And throughout his career, he has been a frequent freelance contributor to various journals and publications, including the Virginia Quarterly Review, the Antioch Review, the Swanee Review, and the High Plains Literary Review. He is also a frequent contributor to our local Urbanite uh, magazine. You've probably noticed that I've done Richard's bio in reverse chronological order, and I I did that on purpose. Uh, The reason for that is that before Richard was any of those things that I just listed, he was someone else. He was somebody that most of us didn't know a lot about. He was a young boy growing up in Philadelphia, and that's what he's going to tell us about tonight. So let's give him a warm round of applause. Of course, I can't uh, live up to that, but I'll try. Can anybody hear me? Anybody? I got you. Okay. Look, uh, the routine around here, I'm, I'm told is that we have about 20 minutes to 25 minutes, I hope. And I'm going to try to read three or four of these, or sections of these, these essays, because that's what they all were, essays. Uh, so you're starting in, I'll start in the way, normal way. I grew up in a slowly decaying neighborhood in West Philadelphia, populated by Irish Catholics, African Americans, sprinkling of... Armenians and Jews, the latter groups mostly shop owners. The Irish, both American-born and immigrants, were the more numerous in that cramped pocket of the city of brotherly love. Having said that, second thoughts rushed to mind. We were certain that um, actually it wasn't. It, it was in in the majority. When the, I'm sorry, we 
the Irish were in the majority when I was in grammar school, but then after that, it everything seemed to change. I reached the age of 12. Many of the Irish and had moved to inner suburbs, to places like Derby and Lansdowne. They were replaced by black people, many of them poor. We were, I recall, overtly racist, fluent in the vocabulary of prejudice, reckless with the old Jim Crow defamations of black people. The Jews in our neighborhood, we distrusted with the tacit approval of our church. They disturbed us equally. They distrusted us equally. equally. We faulted them on being too clever, too canny. We accused them of intelligence. They often did, I hear, from, I did, how often did I hear from the mouths of my own kind people with complaints against landlords or grocers or cops. I just got to get me a smart Jew lawyer. The Armenians were few among us. They knew nothing of the history of their, we knew nothing of the history of their race, that it was as sad as our own. So we didn't think much about them. They were just there, people from beyond the Black Sea, peering at us over the counters of their, of their shops, presiding over their cold meats, powdered sausage, and dense cheeses of evo- with evocative aromas. Now and then we fought the blacks. We wrestled them on the pavements, scrapped on the, on the asphalt. We were afraid of them. Lately I learned they were afraid of us. These brawls went on into my early teens. We rarely came out of them with anything worse than a few bruises or black eyes. In fact, we often emerged oddly satisfied, eager to flaunt our wounds and recount the dis- uh, and distort each clash over and over and in this way enhance our meager legend. Evidently, we outgrew, eventually we outgrew this combat. We all heard. Do I need that? We all learned early, early the geography of our territory, that some streets were safe for us and others less so. Yet some among us found friends across racial lines. From about four, from about four years, uh, to the years, from about age four to the years just prior to my adolescence. One of my steadiest companions was black Herman Horton, whose family had come up to Philadelphia from, from the South when he was an infant. We were always in and out of each other's house. We went junking together, borrowed carts from a junk shop on Mount Vernon Street and pushed them through the neighborhood, knocking on doors and seeking to old to asking for old newspapers. At the end of the day, we would roll the loaded carts back to be weighed, then split our take, maybe $2 each, three, four. We went into the black streets and into the white. We each thought we were under the other's protection. Herman was bigger than me and stronger, but, I, but couldn't run as fast. I admired him. His skin was blue-black, a contrast which unleashed the sun-like whiteness of his eyes and teeth. Our neighborhood was called Corktown because of the, uh, the Irish 
who lived in it, and called Corcus by the Irish who lived in it, and here and there owned a few parts of it. It was a name of long standing, alluding to the country and seaport of in Ireland from which they they left in the 19th century to begin with. They, by, by about 100 years, they were still coming in, actually. Um, from, from now and then, Herman and I happened, hopped the number 36 trolley car, hung from the back to avoid paying the, the fare, and rode all the way into center, center City, Philadelphia. We spent our money in penny arcades, played pinball, and ate hot dogs. We always felt oddly excited, full of vague expectations. I could define which, while ambling in those narrow streets in the oldest part of the city. In the neighborhood, I knew every house, every shop, and every street. Downtown, every street was rich in mystery. And down there, I became a small particle of the flowing crowds, whites for the most part, but blacks too, and some Chinese. I was awed by the Pennsylvania Railroad's blackened Chinese wall, a giant stout embankment with a stone facade. Walking through the tunnel beneath the wall one day, I saw a young gypsy woman for the first time in my life with silver bracelets on both arms, sulky, feline, feline creatures gliding, gliding, swishing, bright skirts. I felt the magnetic pull of their alien beauty. There is... um, I'll do better in the next one, I hope. Okay. uh, hmm. I began to truly hate... uh, That's him. Let me see. This is uh, my father and his tattoos. The tattoos of my father were incomparable, incomprehensible to me. Just dark, large, dark blue blots on each of his forearms and biceps. One, one I recall really uh, red mother. Another U.S. Navy. Another very ugly one was a baby with no name. I wondered who it was. One of my brothers? <laughs> I don't know. I never did come. Uh, I, I feel strange sometimes talking the, about disloyalty that when I, I bring these memories forth, some, uh, uncertain that these details actually reflected the readiness of my father. There was a terrible solid, solid, solidarity solidity about him, a weight and substance to his presence that seemed to displace other objects and people. I was always proud of my father and never knew why, nor cared to have it explained. My brothers and I were also church-going Catholics, though not my mother. She was a nominal, nominally Protestant, which meant my parents were in a mixed marriage. None too too common back then. I think my father gave gave way to the priests because he thought he owed his sort of domestic generosity to his church. 
He did this even though he detested Monsignor Maloney. This was the priest who perpetually, personally consigned Ingrid Bergman to help to hell from the pulpit for several two uh, Sundays in a row. After in a row after the wor- after the world learned of her illegitimate love child, fathered by the Italian film director Roberto Rossellini. Had she heard about it, the denounced actress probably would not have been intimidated by the Monsignor's rage. I'm sure, being a Swedish Protestant and all, in those days I thought you had to be Catholic to get into hell. (laughs) My father's contempt for Monsignor Maloney was not stirred in defense of Miss Bergman so much as by his railing every Sunday against people who dropped pennies in the collection baskets. That bastard, I heard him remark to my mother one day, who does he think he is? A lot of people around here don't have money, don't have pennies to give. I came to suspect my father was an actual contributor to the, Mons- to the Monsignor's display, displeasure. I have a vague recollection of a jelly jar which penet- which pe- with pennies in it on his bedroom bureau, which was empty every Monday. Let me see. Okay. I have, let me see. Oh, that's fine. That's fine. Uh, I'm just trying to shorten everything. And it got so short, it perhaps is Okay. Uh, You see, I don't know. I'm going to go right to this one. Work. This is about work. This is a, an essay about work. Remember that. <laughs> My first encounter with true justice came at a young age. I was, found, I was 14 and working as a pony boy in the Philadelphia Zoo. This is an improbable place for an epiphany, but there it occurred. And callow though I was, I knew it was something not frequently met with. Since then, I have come to believe that true justice must be the outcome of felicitous circumstance, that it can obtain only on its own terms, which is to say, without human managements, which invariably compromises it. My own experience, for instance, was facilitated by a gorilla. It was a weekend job and not a soft one as you might mistakenly conclude, thinking of balloons and water ice and happy squealing of little children in petting zoos, as this was, set within the broader grounds of the, of the country's oldest zoological gardens. It was a child's entertainment we were engaged in, but one that demanded more than the labor of children to bring about. This dirty, menial work was my initiation into the world of work, where I expected to find the freedom I knew all adults had. There were five of us, pony boys, on Saturday and Sunday morning. Starting at eight, we cleared the stalls to all the foul haze and hay and dung. We, we hosed down the concrete beneath, put in fresh hay, that we led, then we led the animals out to the ring and 
for the next six hours or so, we walked around and around a circle with these kids, always holding them tight, so uh, listening to their fibbing. Little kids in the in the saddle who want, who wanted to ride him with his own and boasted he knew how to because his father owned a, a ranch in New Jersey. My mother, who could never tolerate those who enjoyed their leisure too deeply, her turn for, for, for the deliberately unemployed was toad. So she was instantly proud of me when I came home and told her I had gotten a dream job at the zoo with pay of $4 a day. She fussed over me. She cooked liver and onions. My favorite. These I never, I never experienced because my brothers hated it. Only later did I learn what that job, that commitment, which because of my mother's enthusiasm, I could not back down out of. Would do it all my life. But at that went my life as a boy. My weekend mornings of baseball or explorations through the contrived wilderness of the Fairmount Park were gone. Work, I soon learned, is emptied on its promise when it degenerates into drudgery. Then it consumes not only the time spent at it, but your other waking hours was, was sapping the ener energies necessary to enjoy them. I would come home each Saturday and Sunday, too weary to go out, even to stand on the street corner like we did with my friends. After a year, I was ready to find something that I would have to have to do. Now my mother expected me to work. The, the luminous past uh, referred to above unfolded before me on Easter Sunday afternoon, always the zoo's busiest day. While I was resting front from tedious resting from our tedious circulation with the ponies and eating my boiled ham sandwiches on a bench near the gorilla's cage, here I saw a boy about seven, all dressed in his Easter whites, pitching stones through the bars at the mighty bamboo. This was the zoo's mountain gorilla, its big attraction, and a very large creature indeed. Though I was only 14, I had... Had sense, uh, I had a sense of proper, proprietary obligations that most employees eventually assume and then, and, and then obliged me to do something, to say something to the child's mother. But she dismissed me. I was just a kid. He, she said nothing to her son. She had no pity for gorillas. Maybe if I had been in uniform, she would have been more impressed. Yet, but we have, I have, I'm sorry, I had more impressed, but we pony boys worked in, in dungarees and t-shirts, always dirty. So for her, I had no official status. I was about to go, I was about to go in search of a uniform keeper when Bamboo took measures of his own. Where's Bamboo? Uh... I saw him bounce around several times inside, side to side, back and forth, 
like a boxer stoking himself, stoking himself as the referee droned through the rules of the fight. Then he moved to the rear of his cage and released a loud gorilla grunt as I scooped up, as he scooped up a, a fistful of his own dung. This in hand, Bamboo ba- bounded forward and flung it through the bars so that it sprayed both mother and brat. <laughs> I knew that I knew the, the keeper wouldn't be wouldn't be needed. The boy spattered with greenish black manure began to wail and shriek his mother too as they started off to final uh, to find some day to complain to about bamboo speckle both both of them again i stood laughing as my 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 at my bench holding on to my arm my my sides because it just hurt so much but i was laughing and laughing and laughing the image of that triumphal gorilla remains in my memory today, I recall the slate-colored sheets sheen of his immense guess, chest. I'm sorry, the gray hairs growing there, and in his over his sad eyes, I was. It was that hair, the evidence of his gorilla age, that brought forth all my sympathy. As before, I ate my lunch every week, every day on that bench, admiring the old ape in the dignity of his leisure. Okay, most of my job. I got that one. Anybody? Uh, um, I think we have two two more, if that's enough. Uh, <laughs> that'd be nice. Uh, well, okay. Um, the first one, I have one here that's a little softer. I have something else, too, that's not... This is the one, I just, this is one little page, just the beginning. This was like the end of this period of my life. Considering the rawness of my early years, I often wonder how I made it to safety. But in some point, and I cannot fix the moment, I calmed the purposelessness and the anger that had roiled my early years. It began to see the world as it was, not as I wanted it to be. That this awakening occurred in Alaska has significance to me because it was enabled in part by the qualities peculiar to that place, its immensity, which swallowed my mind, its staggering indifferent beauty, which awoke a sensitivity I never knew I had within me. These elements of the environment were beyond my ability to understand Yet they stimulated in me the strongest desire to do just that. Day after day, as I awoke and the white mountain presented itself to my eyes again and again, as if newly sprung from the earth. Yet I felt stranded in a purgatorial wild wilderness, a a place nearly absent human habitation, except for a few friends, improvident people whose perceptions like my own were set a quarter turn off reality. Under the dome of a sky the color of new steel, I would exalt the fact of my existence. A few moments later, I would feel nearly crushed into deep despair. My mind was changing, always changing, as new ideas, new to me, flowed into it, depending on which this planet, the planet turned toward the sun. 
I dwelled in sparkling blackness or unrelenting disconcerting light, imprisoned by the burning snows, suffering a sense of impregnable aloneness. I turned to confronting myself over and over again. I could not escape myself. I was all I had. I went into the territory, not knowing what I might find, what I would do. Having, two, having read 200 books, I left full of vague purpose and a feeling that I was cultivating a fragile sense of self-respect and self-forgiveness. I came to Alaska in the summer of 1956 on a plotting troop carrier, the USS Funston. I left on a fast plane nearly three years later, my first time aloft. Anybody have a whip? <laughs> uh, okay, okay. I'm not trying to rush this. I just want to see if, I, if, if you're awake. Uh, uh, actually, this, is what, this one is sort of like, uh, this is what it really was. You have to have some kind of beginning to, to, to a book like this, I guess, or some of us. Uh, but I thought I'll save the, save the first piece for last. It's called My Brain Has a Mind of Its Own. When I sat down to write this memoir, I hoped to reach much, much farther and deeper into my life as it was lived or as I perceived it. I would write about my career as a journalist of some 40-odd years, of travels all over the world as a foreign correspondent, as a witness to small wars and immense tragedies, and as an editor of a serious American newspaper. I would write of people I met and interviewed, important and obscure, good and bad, people engulfed by life and members of the smaller cohort, the knowing. Mine has not been an extraordinary life, not exceptionally adventuresome, though my craft or the plying of it introduced me to many significant, sometimes tragic, occasionally magic events. I traveled great distances, lived for for lengthy periods in foreign countries as a correspondent for an American newspaper. I've I've reported events from South Asia, Europe, Africa, the Middle East, Russia, and, and Latin America, and interviewed more people than I could give ever recall. With all that, I assumed my project would prove easily enough. Easy. I was wrong. It, is lo- it was hard to, to explain what held me back, just what it was that fixed my focus on the earlier years of my life and would not permit me to pass on to the better years. For some inexplicable reason, I was denied by an impenetrable barrier, control of my own life, This impediment was not static. It moved like a leaden ice flow, pushing back even as I tried to push forward with every force of mind I could generate. But after a short while, I stopped wrestling with what I could not understand and surrendered. I pursued no more lines of inquiry and and hoped my mind would express itself. And it did. Memories came forth that surprised me and because they had, such, had little to do with the person I became and more with the becoming of that person. The stories that floated to the surface unbidden were nearly all from the early part of my life. And though 
through the years before and immediately after I left my home in Philadelphia and began my three years as a soldier in snowy Alaska. These stories were fished out of the sea of fact and uncertainty that seethes within me. I was, I was not pleased with the person that re- they revealed. I felt chastened, though it made me realize that luck has been my companion for a long while and that more good outcomes came to me when I think I deserved. My my motives and responses toward other people were often not what they should have been. Too cold. I would have wanted more warmth, attentiveness, more generosity evident in my judgments, less impulsiveness, less rigidity, more forgiveness. I hope, in my, as my life ticked on, that I improved, and there is some evidence of that contained in the final essay of this collection, just the beginning. You see, I am one of those whose path through life turned for the better. Unexpectedly, I expected no blazing epiphany, no sudden recognition of the self, but it happened, and I don't know why. To this day, I feel the need to be grateful, but to whom? That I don't know either. All right, anybody want to talk? Thank you. Right on. Very pleasure. How, how do you get all that? How do you get all that? <laughs> anyway, anyway. <laughs> Can anybody talk? Please. Yes. Oh, there you are, Judge. How you doing? <laughs> of course I did. I wrote it. Oh, of course. Yes, sorry. I've been, that was just the beginning. Yes. That. Yes, Edgewood School. For, uh, that's just the beginning. Yeah. That was what I started the other, just, just a while ago, just the beginning, considering the rawness of my early years. But I did have, some of it's not been read, so I'll affl- afflict you with that. Okay. No one in my family had gone to college, so I hoped to. I hoped to. But once back, in, in the lower in the lower forty eight, I was uncertain why why which door to knock on. What institution of higher education would take in a dropout like me? All I had was a diploma issued by the Department of Education of the Alaskan Territory, attesting that I had passed every test and so forth, and otherwise met all necessary requirements. I was, mu- I was mustered out of the Army at Fort Meade in, ba- in Maryland. During that process, I learned about that right down the highway in a town called College Park sprawled the campus of the University of Maryland. The institution that offered the courses I had taken in Anchorage, so I went there and knocked and hoped for the best. <clears throat> in a bricky, federal-style building with far- fat white columns, I encountered an unsmiling woman of middle age with a red flower in her lapel, who seemed only slightly curious about this man sit before her, three or four years older than just about every freshman on the campus. Uh, At that time, she said, you have no high school diploma. This I understood as, why are you here? I have this, I said. I said, 
I laugh about this all the time because of the reaction. <laughs> I have said, I, I, I have this. I said and held out my modest piece of ivory-colored paper, which I still have framed in my bookcase at home, which she, she scrutinized like a jeweler looking at it for flaws in an, in an already dubious stone. <laughs> Suddenly her face flashed as if a light just turned on inside of her. Every wrinkle disappeared. And through that brilliant, true smile slipped the words, the territory of Alaska? It says the territory of Alaska. In her mind, I suppose, she had entertained a fascination for that distant wilderness, assigning it to it an exotic allure. Who knows? But not only did she welcome me into the college, she handed me credits in English and history based on my test scores, which made me nearly a sophomore. I never did figure out her out, but I never forgot her either and always regarded her as an agent of change in my life. I was, the, I was at the university for three joyous years, found the entire idea of, of seminars, textures, lectures, people to discuss with new discoveries of geniuses long gone and the books that left behind. Very much to my, my liking. And I found something else at the university. A peppery young law, lawyer <laughs> from Argentina on a Fulbright scholarship <laughs> named Susana Maria Ansa. We married and shortly after we went into graduate school for a master's in sociology. And I immediately after graduation went to work at $97 a week on the Baltimore News Post, a Hearst newspaper. That looked, felt, it looked, felt, and behaved like one of those perfervid, mischievous rags of old Chicago on the sort that flowed in her heck, sort of a Ben Heck interpretation. In short, I entered at the lower end of the world of journalism. The work of my life it was not in, bad pa- in a bad paper. It was just not a good paper. And what I recall most of those beginnings was that I didn't work very hard and had lots of fun. Fun, <laughs> fun it seemed, was the attraction of newspapering. To this day, it's still on, on, on offer here and there where newspapers survive. Reporters have fun. Editors go to meetings. <laughs> Fun and the byline back then constituted the larger part of our compensation. You couldn't live on the wage. Still, there was something pleasantly feverish about the reporter's life, especially a young man who's finally found his course. We raced through the night, ties flying back. We wore hats. We, w- we visited with the cops and recorded plaintive tales of runaways who always arrived in an af- aftermath to interview thrilled bank ro- robbers. Recently robbed as g- at gunpoint, we watched as gray corpses were hauled from the leaden harbor waters, the crab-gnawed floaters, as they are called. We saw ourselves as characters in a petty nocturnal opera it was a yeasty package, passage, and each of us did 
his best to grow a callus on his bleeding heart. Idealism, that became part of the little profile later. It crept in after Watergate, and as the, pa- as the pay got better, I learned much about being a journalist there in Baltimore. And about a year later, uh, I took a job in Washington of United Press, at the United Press, a completely different experience. There I spent, I spent most of my time in an office, rarely out reporting. I filed wires and wrote radio news, the UPI clients. The Washington Press Corps is, I found, rife with prima donnas. Too many of its members cultivated a false sense of authority very, by, by virtue of their association with people who held real authority. They were earnest and serious and stuffy. They had no fun. There were Kennedy's, Kennedy's years of, of what remained of them. And as with many Americans of a certain age, I can recall where I was the day the president was shot in Dallas. I was eating a sandwich while contemplating the face of General Casimir Pulaski, one of our wonderful saviors, at his monument in Pennsylvania Avenue when one of the copy clerks came running down, tears spilling from her eyes to fetch me. And to this day, whenever John Kennedy's image appears to my mind, it is accompanied by the aquiline visage of the Polish hero who helped us eject the British from our country. In 1964, Susanna received her master's degree in College Park. It was a day of joy, though shadowed. The conditions of her scholarship required her return to her own country for at least half a year. Since I have a semester of class work left in my own master's degree, which I never really did get, in international relations, we we would be separated. This was painful for both of us. And for reasons, uh, she was pregnant and more certainly would discover, would deliver before I could reach her home in Argentina. So I stayed on in Washington, lonely and anxious, cheered only by a letter from her, a letter from her telling me of our first daughter, Andrea. August 1, 1964. I would follow her later in another story. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. I'll do that. Anybody have anything? <laughs> anything to do? Anything to say? God, I must have put you to all the sleep. <laughs> yeah. Well, I did too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I never brought that up because he doesn't believe it. But my brother, my long lost brother, is in in here. There is a there is a a, stor- a story. This is a story of uh, a man who uh, raised chickens on his roof. In here is a whole slew of information I have about animals in in our city and in our neighborhood. And God, we miss them. Uh, but this guy, his name was, uh, he was, he was a German, a Russian. Russian. 
he was in our country now, then, and he was an Iceman. He pushed, it's about the Iceman, he pushed this big, immense thing through the city, uh, through our neighborhood with big chunks of ice on it. And he was like that, and he was bent in and everything, but he had arms as big as my legs. And uh, he had, uh, he kept chickens. He chickens upstairs. He had, he, he, he <clears throat> the interesting part of this man, besides well, many things, <clears throat> he was very poor, we thought. And he uh, decided to start taking uh, chickens. And he, was, he had them up there on the roof. And so he had created a, uh, a uh, little house, and he slept in that house all through the warmer times of the year. And I woke up every morning. I was saying, I where might find that. I woke up every morning. I woke up each morning to a stuttering cry of a triumphant rooster. I never thought this odd, though I was aware that blast, that blatant barnyard sounds were not normal in the city, and I felt advantaged by this particular delight. Uh, The rooster's cry came from roof of the building down the street where where, uh, uh, Sammy uh, was living. living. The rooster cry came. The Acme Market occupied the ground building down the street. The Acme occupied... I'm sorry. Uh, Well, anyway, he lived on top. He threw threw spring and summer of the fall. He slept in the shack. And every once in a while, uh, uh, one of these things would fall down like that. <laughs> and he doesn't believe it. I had my brother who never told a lie, and I said to him, to tell him, Houston, didn't we get awakened in the morning like a... <laughs> yes, yes, yes. A wonderful story. There's another one he doesn't believe. No, uh, this one is uh, this one was pure and true. Yeah. Golly. Oh, oh, that's in this book. That's that's a bigger part of the book. It's the longest one I've had, and it was very interesting because I wrote it, and it was about it was about a trip. We took a trip, myself and a guy who named I was with. He um, his name was Joe. Uh, I, I'm using his phony name instead of him, Joe Bargo or something like that. And we were hanging around in uh, the the the, uh, the uh, I'm sorry, hanging around in one of the one of the places in down down in the, in the uh, on the, at sea. It was not not it was not here. It was in New Jersey, New Jersey. And uh, we went there after, in the middle of the night, we were all drinking too much. And we went there. We went all the way down 100 miles in, in a car a friend of ours had. And uh, we couldn't get in. Uh, we slept on the beach. We were very tired. And uh, we slept anyway. And then we, got, we had $2, so we got hot dogs or something. And then for some reason or other, and I'll never understand it, uh, we were going to go back with my friend with the big black Buick, uh, and we were driving off. We were in the back of the car, and there were two other guys. And we reached uh, a certain point 
going toward toward Philadelphia. And uh, right outside of Philadelphia, he stopped for a minute. He was going to do something with the car. And I got out of the car, and I said uh, to my friend, let's go to Florida. Uh, You know, he just lit up in him like that. He says, I only have $2. That's... I have $2, too. So that's what we have. And that's what we set off on, just walking, walking, walking. And about two weeks later, we were half dead, and we, we, we reached Florida. I don't like to go to Florida anymore. <laughs> <laughs> My children, yes. Somebody's putting it. Anyway. Okay. Well, you have a question? My God, this isn't a church. But anyway, thank you very much.